How do we learn lessons from the past? How do we leave behind our global problems and bring about a new era for humanity? What are the technologies and behaviors we need to adopt to make sustainable change? And how do we bring all that back to the people who can take action to change the world? These are the questions that futurist Ada Paris has been grappling with in the face of the challenges we have today. On today's show, Ada will help shine a light on these questions and give us ways to recognize new patterns that can lead to a better future. Burning desire. Big ideas. Bold action. I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Ada Paris today. She is a futurist, a cultural strategist, a system designer, and most of all, an artist. Ada is known as a polymath and enthusiastic curator of people, patterns, and stories. In 2020, she was longlisted as one of the most influential women in UK technology. Ada has been a longtime innovator in pushing the boundaries of storytelling in the virtual medium and has a long view on how emerging technologies will shape us and our future and how we might best shape those technologies to produce thriving on this planet. Ada, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, I'm curious, and, and I don't always ask this question, but anybody that calls themselves a futurist, I'm really curious, you know, what does that mean to you? What is a futurist for you? Um, well, firstly, I never initially called myself a futurist. It was something that was given to me, a title given to me. Um, and for me, I don't pretend to have a crystal ball mm-hmm. and try and predict trends. It's more about recognizing, and I was defining it a little while ago, but it's being able to acknowledge the past and mm-hmm. know that we have to learn from the past, be very present in this, be very present in the present, you know, and then looking at how we can use the lessons from the past to help us shape the future. So co-design the future and looking at that from a perspective of how it impacts us as societies, as cultures, our identity, our economics, all of those things, rather than trying to just go, this is what I see the future of technology is. Where are we moving to and how is our relationship with technology shifting or what are some of the patterns that we've recognized from the past that are just repeating? The only difference is the type of technology. We've gone from um, analog to digital to where we don't know yet. Yeah, I love I love that uh, notion of the past and the kind of the, there's a couple of pieces of the past we should be really aware of. One is pitfalls, right? We've f- screwed this one up this way in the past before, yeah. or we've messed this one up repeatedly over and over as long as human beings are on the planet. How do we watch out for that and make sure we don't put that into our future? And also just the notion that there are these long arcs and patterns um, yeah. and that becoming aware of them gives us a much better access to know know and notice where things are going through in the future. And I think a lot of us get, um, we get really hung up on the day's news. Like the immediacy, especially in the digital era, the immediacy of so much news and so much content that it seems like this moment is always the most important moment that a human being has ever faced. Yeah, and we forget that we've been here before. And Mm -hmm. I think that part of that is really understanding the language that we're using and recognizing that, you know, technology is not just something digital or algorithmic. Uh, it's, you know, they it comes from the words of craft and art and process. And so we've always had forms of technology. We may not recognize them as that. It's just that they weren't digital. And for me, the way that we use tech is to do three things, to connect with ourselves, to connect with our environment and to connect with others. So, you know, cave people would have used Flint or, you know, spears or what have you. And, you know, now we're using other forms of technology to do exactly the same thing. In the future, we will be using technology to do a very similar thing. So those are the patterns that that connects everything. And if we can recognize those patterns in the past and in the present, then we can have an idea of how we would use technology in the future. Yeah, and I just wanted to just for you just talk about a little bit how we talk about futurism and how I talk about myself as a futurist. I was a traditional futurist in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, hire us to figure out what the future of TV is going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And we did with these big projects. We tried to figure out what the future of a certain technology would be like. And, um, you know, that kind of looking for trends and things like that. I don't really consider futurism more as just being a, you know, a, a predictor of patterns. And, and, and what we talk about when we talk about, about the future now that we think is really, really significant is not only having that ability to have the long view going back, but having a really long view and instead of um, 
uh, predicting the future, generating the future, you know, saying, declaring things, imagining, creating stories that help us pull, uh, pull us into a, a better future. Um, really interested in talking to you about stories and technology, of course, um, and how we see those things evolving or co-evolving. Um, and, and, and just want to stop for a second and say, you know, thank you for all the kind of pioneering work that you did, uh, especially around dance and the virtual stuff. And, you know, the, the, the pushing of the boundaries of what it means to be present and physically embodied and all those things. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I rarely get to talk with somebody who's been playing these games as long as I have and really made the kind of, of choice to be an innovator versus a, um, a consumer of other creative ideas and technology. We see a lot of that. Somebody has an idea, somebody else turns it into money, but there are those that uh, are the kind of forerunners. And I, I really appreciate about that, about your work specifically. What, tell me what, what, you know, a little bit, what is your passion in this area, technology and future art? You know, what is it that's, that's still having you have the drive that you have to, to keep innovating and keep being a leader? Um, I think more and more recently, I've realized that um, I'm a systems thinker. I didn't realize that before. I thought that everybody saw, recognized these patterns across different places. And I get really excited by recognizing a pattern in the world that probably most people wouldn't put together. And so looking at those things and thinking, well, what are some of the lessons that we can learn? But also my work now, and I, I say work, but it's, it's, my passion it's mm -hmm. who I am it's what I do whether it's I'm creating art or what have you but it's always around this area of I created this or I recognize the pattern that I called cyborg shamanism and that is now a lens through which we can look at the world and so what excites me is recognizing that, that pattern in everything mm -hmm. so it's a framework that I've created that has five phases the first is leave. How do we leave the old ways behind? We acknowledge that there are problems. And rather than spending time trying to work on those problems, we say, how do we leave those problems behind to create new value systems? The second is grow. How are we get, sorry, the second is breathe. How are we gonna remove those tensions in the system to create a hypothesis for change? The third is grow. What are the tools, technologies, rituals, behaviors that we need to try and make that true? Or to try and see, you know, test, stress test it. The fourth is flow. And we tend to ask the question, what type of ancestor do you want to be? So how are we making it sustainable? And that's, that's what you're talking about, that long-term thinking. So not just thinking about our generation or our children's generation or their generation, but actually longer than that. And then the third one is, sorry, the fifth one is ground. I'm losing count today. The fifth one is ground. <laughs> how do we ground that down to create a um, sense of, I used to say citizenship, and actually, we now talk about kinship because it's that relationship with everything that is other. And so that phase, that framework, those five things, I'm recognizing that in all sorts of worlds. And that excites me. So spirituality, quantum mechanics, you know, uh, algorithmic technology, faith-based religions, metaphysics, it's all in all of those things. And so when I see it, I get really excited because I go, oh, there's lessons that can be learned from that world mm. and brought into these other worlds. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I love it. And I want to actually make sure I get that framework to share with our listeners in the notes. Um, and what, it, what occurs to me just when you said that is, that, oh, Ada has a, a, a methodology or a framework for us to actually add competency to our capacity to think in long terms. I mean, like... Human beings are, are, you know, in our animal nature, we're, we're really concerned about preservation in the current moment. Am I going to eat or am I going to be eaten? Uh, am I safe in the pack? Am I have a, do I have good stature, social stature in the, the group? Um, and then beyond that, then I can start to think of other things, but that's a moment by moment by moment stress on us. And, and you're talking about a way to give us access to thinking about bigger timeframes, both in the past and towards the future. And then not, I love the part about, uh, you know, like just distinguish the past and leave it behind because we can't get just stuck in, oh man, that's bad. <laughs> you know, because that's another obsession of the human brain is like to focus on, on the absolute negative, the worst of everything. And I think that's what's given rise to grievance culture so much is we just have such a inane habit of finding out what's wrong. I think part of the problem is that we, we as a society, tend to get stuck in binaries. Mm. It's either or. Yeah. 
Mm. And so those binaries create a level of competition that means that we're all, you know, people end up spinning themselves out because it's, well, I've, I've got to be this or that. Whereas I take a systemic approach, a living systems approach now to everything that we do, that recognizing that living systems are self-operating organisms that have an impact on their environment. You know, so that's us as humans. That's everything that we do. And so recognizing that what we should be doing is having a holistic living system, systemic approach to everything and recognizing the interconnections and interconnections of everything means that we have we have to have a different approach to doing things, which also means we are able to bring in those other voices, those other lived experiences, those other knowledge and wisdom, because everybody's on that even playing field. There isn't a hierarchy of, well, technology from Silicon Valley is better than indigenous technologies from New Zealand. They're all trying to do the same thing. And what I do, and what my co-founder Marcus and I do, Marcus Anderson and I do, is bring those different worlds together. It occurs to me that that inside of technology, we have, um, we, we're incentivized to, you know, turn on money-making machines, right? That's the incentive inside of tech uh, versus maybe your indigenous culture in New Zealand might be incentivized by something else that might look a little bit more like, like wisdom or, you know, you mentioned living systems and symbiosis is a really, you know, the, the, the waste of one uh, living organization or, or organism in the, the ecosystems, the food of another, you know, we don't live like that as human beings. We just take, and then our waste is toxic. <laughs> um, Hey, tell me a bit about how, how can we start to look for technologies that are both um, innovative and maybe they make money. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying capitalism has to go, but but have more of a, a positive impact upon humans impact on our each other and the world. Where does that come from? Where do we look to find that? Oh, I, um, I saw a couple of things. I mentioned it earlier, language. Yeah. But, you know, if, if first of all, if I asked you what you meant by innovation uh-huh. i'm a very different description of that and those descriptions of those words and our relationship with those words are based on our experiences mm-hmm. and so they're very much uh person-centered uh they're very much based on our location our experience our knowledge our wisdom but actually the words translate across many boundaries and so i think that what we need to do is really start to create really look at what we mean by particular things. So what do we mean by technology and recognize that it's also not binary. It's uh, all of these things are fluid. But this, the other thing that we need to do, and this probably comes first, is that we need to create new hierarchies of needs. Mm. So you know, we look at Maslow's, people tend to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but we, through the research that we've done, we've realized, and there's photos of him, that Maslow actually took those hierarchy of needs from the Blackfoot nations peoples and flipped them on their head and put self-actualization, you know, this I, I, I at the top. Whereas when you look at, start to look at indigenous cultures, what they have as a base is that there needs to be, it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that the planet is safe. Because without that, we would not have, you know, access to food or anything else like that. And so it becomes less, the base level is a we rather than I. And so I think once we start to flip our, create new hierarchies of needs, we then have a different approach and a different relationship with ourselves, with the planet, with money, with everything, because then we realize that, to your point, um, you know, everything is connected. I remember one of the, um, my colleagues on, one of my peers on one of the um, programs I was on recently said that nature creates no waste. Mm -hmm. And so if nature creates no waste, why can why can't our economic uh, money systems replicate that? That you know, it's not just being filtered off to the one percent of the one percent, but actually, what we're doing, Marcus and I, is we're looking at where are some of these systems that are constantly flowing. So I'm quite fascinated by looking at water conservation, how nature makes sure that water continually flows, and if we look at those models, why can't we use that as a business model? and create, you know, use our, our innovation, or our ability to imagine something other than, than what we have. And I, I really think actually, I think it was a good point about innovation because what, what tech means in innovation is anything that, that, that digitizes something in the old world and makes money off of it, that's innovation. Uh, 
but you know, if we look maybe towards what's needed, is is it, that that kind of innovation can be be bankrupt of imagination. It can be actually not very creative at all. Um, yeah. In effect, it, if you are creative, like I am, and you are, it's sometimes it, the things that are winning in technology just seem so boring. I'm like, oh my goodness, how can that win? It's such a reductionist, you know, base level, you know, making making micro amounts of money out of something thing that doesn't seem innovative at all, really. Exactly. And I think that we get into this this loop of what's the next big thing? What's the next big thing? What's the next big thing? Are you going to be the next Facebook? Are you going to be the next, you know, Instagram or the next this? And we've already got those. Why do we need more of those? We have so many issues and so many things that need addressing, you know, just in our, even in our local communities, that why are we not looking to, and there, I mean, there are, when I say why are we not looking, why is the money not being filtered to those towards those who are doing those that necessary work rather than developing another wellness app or another food delivery app yeah and it's 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 pretty clear our incentive systems are are oriented to do what they do right now and we're it's going to require quite a bit of imagination to to invent a system that will will reward other kinds of behavior. But we invented the first one, so we can invent another one. It's not like a, like it dropped out of the sky and this is the one we get to use. We actually have the capacity to do that. The time is now. Given that we're in this pandemic, you know, that uh, for, for most of us, well, I think for many, most of us, the rules of the game have been broken. We've realized mm. that what we want, were once calling normal is no longer normal or never really was. And so we have this, we're in this, um, I do believe that we're in this liminal space where we have the opportunity to really fundamentally shift, you know, and change and create new things and new models. Because I think that a lot more people are less risk averse because we've seen what's been happening. So people are going, well, that didn't work. Let me try something new. And so, you know, we're not the only ones having these conversations. We're not the only ones doing this. And what we're trying to do to the part of the intro that you mentioned about being a, me being a curator is we're also looking at finding those other people, those other organizations that are doing similar work or having similar conversations and just coming together. Yeah, count, count, count me in the Generative Futures Initiative boldly now and we're happy to participate in any way we can. Uh, we, we have a you know kind of a crazy model where a majority of our time is done, use, is spent doing things that don't make money. Most of our time is 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 doing the things we think really need to be done in the world, and then we try to make enough money to keep the ball rolling. And I think you probably recognize that. And a lot of us in this this boat are there now. Uh, I want to talk about something that that just occurred to me since we're talking about technology, and we started talking about you know indigenous culture and other kinds of of wisdoms and other kinds of technology. There's there's a topic that most people don't talk about too much, and that's the technology te technologizing of human beings in our current system. We've technologized human beings. We've become widgets, so to speak. We are, we are good for doing your grocery shopping or we're good for any number of things. And kind of from a systems level, they, they see us like a, a subroutine in a program. They, they, human beings are, are not counted as humans inside of the Western technological landscape. And I, I, don't, I don't have any answers to this. I know there's a lot of philosophers who have talked about this, Heidegger and Adorno and people like that, even as early as the, the 30s and 40s and 50s, talking about how this was happening in the West. But do you, do you think that there's something that we can learn from a, a, te, a kind of a different te technological wisdom so that humanity can kind of re reclaim its place as being human beings instead of being an instrument? I think that... For me, a lot of it goes back to, again, the language that we use. So mm -hmm. when we refer to businesses and, as operating like machines. Mm -hmm. Then the humans within those machines are referred to as resources. Mm -hmm. And so you have human resources or human capital. Mm -hmm. And that tells me everything that I need to know about the system. Because then you're not recognizing the human as an individual. You're not recognizing them as a potential, you know, um, helping them to try and achieve their potential, <clears throat> excuse me, their potential. But because when it's a machine, people talk about this is a well-oiled machine and this is, you know, and that in itself creates a narrative of how it's, how the system works and the fact that it may never shift. And so we need to, 
first of all, I mean, this pandemic has made has enabled us to be able to recognize the human in each other, mm. to you know, to look in through the Zoom to recognize people and to be able to say, how can I help you? What do you need? Yeah. Those levels of support. And as things start to open up and, you know, things get back to what people call the new normal. I don't know what that means, but, you know, when things start opening up, I really want us, and I've spoken to business leaders about it, let's make sure that we keep those human aspects in there. So recognizing that as everybody has a human right to good mental health and well-being. Mm. And as business owners and business leaders, you also have a duty of care to make sure that you aren't burning your people out mm. and that they have a good work-life balance and they have, you know, that they come to a place, workplace that is psychologically safe for them. Well, you can't do that, or it's difficult to do that if you're constantly referring to the business as a machine yeah. or referring to people as resources or referring to them as capital because you're not, you're dehumanizing them. And then you add the layer of technology on top of that and it becomes process driven and efficiency of you know processes and market share and all of those things. So there's that whole reframing that needs to happen for us to be able to really start to recognize businesses. I mean, so, so not businesses, but to recognize people and to try and shift the way that we do things. It's not impossible because we've already seen a lot of the things that people said were impossible have been happening. For example, working from home mm. and actually enabling people to choose their starting times to, move, to match their bodies, their own slick circadian rhythms, all of that has actually increased productivity. It occurs to me just from our earlier conversation that maybe we need to adopt the language of ecosystems and you know living systems to yeah. talk about organizations. And one of the things that 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 though just occurs in that it's like in living systems we have like birth, life, and death, and entire systems and ecologies change and evolve over time. I'm thinking here I'm in Colorado, and if you look at a forest fire that sweeps through an area. There's this big cycle where flowers come up that haven't come up in 30, 40 years. There's seeds that are in the ground that require the fire to break them open. And so there's these natural longer cycles. But when we create a company, we want it to be monolithic. We want it to be around forever and dominate forever. We don't, we don't build in, in cycles. And, and we certainly don't honor or respect um, a retreating cycle. We only respect growth. We don't, we don't respect the, oh, this company's in its later life stages. And isn't it wonderful what it's produced and honor it and celebrate it and then, then have it come apart and become something else. It just seems like we really aren't even close to having a living systems framework for thinking about the way we organize ourselves. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I recently finished a course with Frio Capra, um, who's a living systems thinker, a philosopher. And, you know, I learned so much on that course. But again, it's definitely about recognizing that we have to change our approach to understanding how we operate, mm -hmm. that living systems, there is a process of metamorphosis or transformation or whatever language you want to use, that as one thing is coming to the end of its as we call it, life cycle, parts of it are transformed and utilized. It's that symbiotic relationship is utilized in something else. So the idea that businesses have a five-year business plan or a five-year strategy says that it's going to be fixed and rigid for five years mm. when we know the rate of change of technology, technological development and everything. Even, you know, two years ago, eight, two years ago, we wouldn't have thought that we would be here. And so those five-year business plans have kind of gone out the window for a lot of organizations. And so we have to think in a way, I think that we should be thinking in a way that is fluid and agile and, you know, ready to adapt so that we can be proactive rather than just reactive when something happens. Yeah, it occurs to me that this all boils down to the fun, fundamental distinction that, that we're in a, we have a zero-sum economy and that the only way to continue to win in an environment is to control the environment, to control the people in it. If you can control enough, then you can continue winning over and over again. Uh, versus the living systems, the 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 goal of the goal of, goal of the caterpillar is not to win the game of of tree of tree of leaf eating or whatever it is. It's it's to to play out its its life cycle and its process and then contribute to becoming a butterfly, which contributes to pollination, which contributes to more habitat for more butterflies. And, um, you know, 
there's, there's, it's almost, it's almost unimaginable in a way that we can transform all the things we need to transform if the name of the game is that we're going to get as much stuff as we can and pile it up and hold on to wealth and hold on to energy and hold on to, to money. Uh, you know, there's no natural system that works like that. It's just human beings that have figured out how to, you know, to stick energy in pockets and store it away. That, but that's the key point that you you talk about, that we're, we're energy. You mentioned energy. Yeah. Everything is energy. And energy never dies. It's just transferred. You know, and so that's what we have to look at. You know, I think as you were speaking, what came up for me as well is this, we also need to look at our political systems. Mm. Because those are, and you know, whichever country you're in, they all seem to be in a particular way. This is very much top-down, you know, vice-like grip on everything else that happens. And they are supposedly elected representatives. And I said, say that very loosely, supposedly representative. Um, but we're in, going back to your earlier point, we're in a digital, we're in a digital world. So what is what should politics be in this digital world where the borders and boundaries that we used to look at in terms of country and nation state and all of those things are now more fluid and now more open? You know, we've got people, organisations and governments now talking about vaccine passports for people travelling across borders. Well, how will that work? You know, those those are the sorts of things that you're asking me what excites me. Those sorts of things excite me. Those questions about what should we be doing? now so that we are less reactive and more proactive but doing it from a place of ethics and morals and empathy and breaking down these old colonial structures and ways of dividing and conquering and um, negating conscious of various people's contribution to the bigger system i feel like i want to have a whole dinner with you just to talk about that specific topic um i, I do feel that that yeah, it's like when you pull on one thread of this this conversation, you end up impacting all the rest of them. And what came to mind when you're saying that is that, you know, our our political systems that we have, most of them are around 200, 250 years old, maybe a little bit younger. You know, the communist movement a bit bit younger. The but they're they're well over 100 years old. They are they were thought of by our you know great great grandparents generation and and back and they were innovative when they came out there's no doubt about it the capacity to move capital in the capitalist system to move people in the communist system is is a, an upgrade over what we may have had 500 years ago or certainly a thousand years ago in terms of being able to organize people uh but the the systems themselves are are continuing to replicate themselves almost as if the survival of the ideology is more important than, than the flourishing of people. What, what I think what you're talking about there is this um, ideological game of chicken. Mm. Nobody wants to step off. Nobody wants to be the first to step off and say, well, we're going to change things. And so everybody just keeps going. And it's this constant keeping people on these uh, hamster wheels mm -hmm. you know, which burn people out. No wonder we have such high crime rates in many cities because people are just on these hamster wheels of going, well, I need, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And I think a lot of that is down to ego, ego comes into that as well. Because um, I, a project I came, or an idea pattern I recognized last year is something I call the ecological triptych. The link between colonialism, capitalism, and climate change is the ego. Hmm. Because we will all say, well, yes, I recycle. Yes, I, you know, I'm gonna go vegan. I'm gonna do all of this stuff, but, we will still fly to Bali to go and do yoga retreat because we can afford to. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So those things go out the window then because it's what well, I need this. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's the very much the individualistic. I need this and I need this to validate myself or what have you. Whereas, and that's where all the competition and all of these things continue to keep going, which is, it's sad. But I do think, and I'm not talking about somebody up the, said to me the other day that, oh, you're talking about utopia. I'm not talking about utopia either. Mm. I'm talking about recognizing that there are other ways of doing things that are more equitable and bring equality and are ethical. And that technology is just, has become an enabler 
of some of that. And one of the um, recently, Marcus and I were hosting some clubhouse sessions, and you know, we, what we do is we come up with these provocations. And one of them we talked about was, is technology now just really a dog whistle for colonialism? Mm-hmm. But you know, it's that high pitch thing that we don't really hear, but it's still keeping things separate and keeping things these rankings and these hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Is that what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> no, really good question. I mean, and, and, and there's no way that's inescapable. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it, it it it's it's the ultimate expression of the capitalist colonial system. It's an ability to divide and conquer and and you know win at a long distance with billions of people. I mean, like it's it's the ultimate power play. Although we put it in these kind of light, fluffy, oh, I'm just communicating in 144 characters frame. It's, it is, you know, and we, we've seen it be used for good and we've seen it be used for, uh, you know, totalitarian uses. And, and, and we've also seen the power that's been granted the people that, that run these corporations, you know, that, that this, the, we're getting ready to have a trillionaire on the planet. And that is the most bizarre, nauseating thing that I can imagine. That was technology that, that did that. You know, that's, that's what empowered that. So I don't think, I think the answer to that is a pretty simple yes. What are we going to build to replace it? That's a, that's a really hard question. But you mentioned in Trillionaire, what came to mind for me is this, this idea that we have of philanthropy, mm. that you know, then we have these billionaires who will decide, well, I think that this money should go here. Mm-hmm. And again, that's colonial right there. <laughs> Like a single person gets to decide what's good for the people. Yeah, it might that might even be uh, back to you know like like Egyptian times. We've we've built pharaohs for ourselves. You know, god kings that get to decide everything about everything. Yeah, so I'm really starting to understand and and research more this concept of um, effective altruism. Uh-huh. About recognizing where the where where the work needs doing first. Not one person deciding, well, I've got... And yes, you know, lots of wonderful things have been done with money, with the money that they've donated. But is that the most effective use of making sure that we maintain this planet or maintain, you know, support life or all of those things? You know, there's so many different ways of looking at this that we... I think one of the first things for all of us is what I've been doing, what Marcus has been doing when we're working, when I work with clients, is get people to recognize where their ego comes into things mm-hmm. and the decisions. And not in that big kind of, you know, I'm going to, you know, what have you. But it's those small decisions that you make that influence everything else and creates a ripple effect. Yeah, and and when we we think of, you know, making money in philanthropy. Uh, philanthropy is great and in the philanthropic work that's been done is great, but the yeah. cost, the cost of the, the making of the money, both in terms of people cost and planet cost, make it so the philanthropy could never catch up. And, um, you know, you could give away billions and billions of dollars a year and it's, it's a full-time job to give away money. It's not like it's easy. And, and it just shows, it's like, um, you know, taking with this hand and trying to put band-aids on this hand doesn't make sense. Let's stop for a minute. I mean, I think the whole world needs a little bit of a timeout beyond the pandemic timeout, but like a real timeout. Like, let's all pause and take, how about we all take a year and, and just figure out how to make things work. Um, and, and, you know, that obviously that's probably not likely to happen, but it's definitely a, a there's something about being able to step back. And we used to talk about the ego, the ego keeps driving us forward. Wisdom has a step back listen a lot more, uh, speak slower, um, yeah. come to conclusions slower. The, one of the things that, um, um, that, that's certainly important, I think, is beginning to use our imagination in that, that regard and seeing, imagining what, what might look different or what it, how it might work differently. Uh, so that, that work is, is very important. And you know, I know you've done a lot of work in storytelling and narrative and art. And you know, how do you see that world impacting our capacity to maybe adopt some new systems that would be more beneficial for people and planet? Um, well, we still use, for most of us, we still use one particular storytelling framework, the hero's mm-hmm. journey. 
Mm-hmm. which in itself is colonial, which in itself is very much a particular, it's one hero, one journey, one guru or mentor who supports them. And the hero is usually a cis white male. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't give space for anybody else. And it's this, you know, and so we have, we're still in this, you know, pandemic. And we've all seen that there's no one savior coming to rescue us. There is none. And so we've all had to realize that, oh, well, I have to look at my own resilience and recognize that I'm part of this story and I'm a storyteller. And so, you know, I mentioned the framework that our cyborg shamanism framework, that's what it is as well. It's a storytelling framework. Mm-hmm. Because what it does is it gets everyone to recognize that we are all part of this and we all have part of the framework. So we use the word cyborg to get us to think, what does it mean and could it mean to be human and what could we be capable of? And we use shamanism as a provocation to to actively seek out other ways of knowing, other knowledge, other wisdom, other technologies. And then when you bring those two worlds together, you've got this flatter, decentralized structure or system of there's no one hero. There's no one guru. There's no one mentor. We are all learning from each other in this um, symbiotic relationship because ultimately we're all trying to do the same thing. And I think that's what we need to do with our story, you know, change our storytelling frameworks mm. that aren't giving the same narrative, the same visual representation, the same kind of North Stars, because those narratives create a vis- ideas of what a North Star should be. And people are driving, working towards those North, star, North Stars, but then you end up having systems that are biased or unjust, or all sorts of things. So even when you're projecting these narratives, there's a lot of people that won't even be able to get the first foot on the ladder. Right. Um, and as you start thinking about you know longer term futures, like hundred year futures, and adopting a new narr- a new narrative approach or the framework that you spoke about, you know, what are some? I want I want to ask you what specifically what it might look like in hundred years. But what are the most important questions? You know, what are the things that that if, if we were to organize ourselves to begin to tell a new narrative, what's the first thing we have to ask to, to get so that, that everybody gets a foot up on that first step? You know, like we, we together take a step forward. What, what do you see there? The question that we ask is what type of ancestor do you want to be? Yeah. And that tends to hit pretty hard to the core because it's not parent grandparent is ancestor so we're talking generations mm-hmm. you know and it also means that we have to recognize that every second that we are here now in this present we are already an ancestor yeah and so it's how do we you know what is the longer term sustainability the ideas all of those things but that's the question that we always ask well and that gets us out of the ego right if i can get if I can get beyond the end of my lifetime, then I'm not going to see any reward for the work. If I can get beyond the end of my children's lifetime, then hey, even a statue is not going to matter that much. And if I can get beyond their children's children's children, then I can re- remember my name. I mean, maybe like written down somewhere, but I'm not going to be like a, a person to them. I'm an ancestor, maybe somebody given respect and honor, but there's really nothing in it for me. And I, th- I think that can be really powerful if you can get far enough out, you know, one, 200 years. Is a, is a good time frame where you can be sure that you're not being self-serving um, and work at those kinds of time frames. But that's really extraordinarily difficult for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, never said it was easy. But we, I think that this last 18 months has made a lot of people ask themselves existential questions. Yeah. Who am I? What's important to me? Who do I want to have around me? What impact do I want to have in the world? And it's not, and realizing that it's not, for many people, it's not just been about myself and my family. Because it's more, what, how do I make sure my neighbors, that I've, you know, we had the, the um, mutual aid support groups coming up. How can I make sure that my neighbors that I've never probably met before, never spoken to, have, have food? or you know water or what have you how can we and so there becomes this um there has for many communities many individuals this sense of giving uh and reciprocity without ego so i'm not doing it because i want to give something back i'll get something back or i'm going to you know put this on the chart and say well you owe me you know two toilet rolls and a bag of sugar 
It's the, actually, I just want to make sure that you are okay. And I think a lot of people have done that. Unfortunately, you know, as we mentioned earlier, politics and governments and the decisions that have been made have um, got a lot of people into a state of frustration where people are just going, I've had enough. I just need to just be me. But I do think that we, there have been some really big lessons that have been learned from that. And I hope that we start to or continue to recognise the value that we as individuals can bring and that one person can make a difference. And do you think... um you know, kind of given the things that we're up to dealing with, whether it be the pandemic or, you know, we still haven't witnessed the economic fallout of this. I mean, our government's been pumping lots of money into economies, but that doesn't mean that we're that we're in a in, that that individual people's lives are not really been damaged by this. Do you think we can do that and kind of keep an eye on our overall impact on the planet now and towards the future? Is this is this maybe a new uh, kind of new way of 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 operating for human beings that we can help people to maybe operate at more than one individual level at a time? I hope so. But I also recognise that the conversation we're having is still from a very privileged viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it's important to actually recognise and acknowledge that, that we're still having, even though, you know, talking about people can make these decisions, we're still talking about it from a very privileged viewpoint. There are a lot of people that, you know, have lost not just family, but, you know, livelihoods and there's no infrastructure in those com- in those countries to even give people the, the bare minimum support. And so whilst we are having this conversation, we are still talking about a certain percentage of the population of the world. And that actually, when we're talking about scarcity, there's no scarcity of land. There's no scarcity of natural resources, no scarcity of natural of water and the stuff that we need. But it's the way that going back to what we talked about with the billionaires and the money, it's where the money lies yeah. that is the issue. And how that's distributed or not, that is the issue. It's not for the want of trying or, you know, the desire to change our lives or for people to, you know, I remember I spoke to um, a friend uh, a couple of years ago, we were on a, Um, business trip and he said that the biggest lottery in life is where you're born and that says it all right it is that is the biggest lottery we none of us have a choice about where we're born Mm -hmm. and the time and to whom and everything and that almost that starts the the clock ticking in a particular direction and I think that that's what we need to recognize and acknowledge those of us who are in these privileged positions should be recognizing that and thinking about what contribution how am I contributing to that positively or negatively yeah and and it's not just where it's you know what body color skin height weight I have a propensity to being over you know big big person little person it's like there's all these things that are so not even something we can choose or it's just it's just the, the the way it goes and um and you're right, there's such a hierarchy of, of who gets a place in line in a different spot just based upon that. And it's, I'm, you know, I'm a white man. I'm up near the front of the, I'm tall, I'm thin, I'm athletic, I'm smart, you know, like educated. Like there's so many, um, so many boxes that I tick. And like, but even, even that's kind of a little um, uh, immobilizing a little bit. It's like, oh, hot, can I get out of line? You're like, like what, how, you know, and so we have allyship and, and all these things that we're, we're learning to do, uh, but it doesn't remove the structure. It doesn't, it, it, like you, you, like I cannot go into a grocery store and not get preferential treatment. I can't wear a sign around my neck saying, hey, don't treat me better because I'm a man. Or my daughter calls me up and has to go to a shop and get something. She's like, I'm afraid they won't listen to me, dad. And I'm like, well, you have to, you know, stand firm and, you know, and then in the back of my head, I know that if she gets in trouble, she can put me on the phone. And so that structure is still there and it's ever present. And especially for women and young women, you can just see them, you know, and, and they're, my daughters are white girls. They have, they're already, they're up way up in front of the line too. Could you just imagine, I can't imagine being back down that line. And so it's a, it's a. And that's why, that's where, that's where true allyship comes in, in. That's where true allyship comes in, into place because we need to, you know, People, I think all of us at this moment in time are going through some form of trauma mm. and racial trauma. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, I'm a black woman born in the UK to an African father and Caribbean mother. And the first time that I was made aware of the colour of my skin, I was young and it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. And so that has been with me throughout my whole life. Whereas, especially now with Black Lives Matter and Brianna Taylor and George Floyd and everything else has happened, a lot more people and white people are recognizing that, oh, wait, I have been getting preferential treatment. And the, the systems that I built my ideas and my views and my North Stars on has always been skewed towards me. Mm-hmm. And so there is this, this sudden, this, um, what, and I've done what I do workshops on this for clients as well. And, you know, for some of them, it's been, well, why didn't I recognize this before? Mm. How did I not see this before? Um, and what can I do now? And so there is that, that's also a form of trauma because everything that you've believed or have been led to believe for many people that recognize, no, well, that's not the case anymore. And so that's where you start to get this fear and fragility of change of things changing and so people have to go and do the work and recognize and you know to that point people have to do that inner work first and understand themselves and be truly honest about what biases they may have and how you can how they can then overcome them and step in and lean in and recognize when actually you are getting preferential treatment what if somebody in the shop if you know that you're in the shop and somebody gives you preferential treatment why not, you know, the person who was there before you, who may be a person of colour, that they have bypassed you, actually just say, well, no, they were there first. Yeah. Those are the sorts of things of being aware of the nuances of these things and then being, speaking up, because that's where the con- the idea of silence is violence comes from. If you don't say anything yeah. and you see it, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's never going to be, you know you know, walk in the park, it is going to be uncomfortable. But the more people that do that, the more people that recognize that, the more it's, the, the more it will change. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about, you know, not new ideas, you know, you know, critical race theories, first papers were written in the 1970s, the big seminal work in the 1990s. Critical theory goes back to the Frankfurter Schuler and the, the, you know, the scholars there in the 1960s talking about how we did to have psychology and anthropology and sociology in, in, in our research around uh, uh, philosophy and how we have a good life. So this is a long tradition. And one of the things that occurs... Sorry, the 1850s, uh... Um, ex-slave and abolitionist Sojourner Truth wrote a speech, Ain't I a Woman? She was talking about it in the 1800s. Yeah. 1800s. So it's not anything new. Right. Well, in this, this, you, well, you just mentioned that there's a, a scarcity of money, but there's also somehow a scarcity of ideas. Not, not that there's not great ideas and great thinking out there, but our access is, is greatly limited. And you know they, they spoke about TV being the the the, the opiates of the masses or religion or and now it's you know it's TikTok. We have this proliferation of thinking and ideas that have no weight and no impact. They just entertain us for brief minutes. But then there's these concepts, um, critical race theory being you know one that's been around for a long time and well in academic circles well. Um, researched and worked on it's where systemic racism ideas come from it didn't get any movement until somebody was against it <laughs> like until somebody said oh wait we don't want any of that then suddenly there's some interest in it and it occurs to me that we kind of have a, a scarcity of access to great thinking human beings have done some great thinking over the past you know 10,000 to 100,000 years depending on on what we can gain access to but um it's Why do you think that access has been limited? well I certainly know. I know. I know. In terms of, uh, you know, my daughter studied African philosophy this uh, past year at the University of Leiden, and, and their professor was really clear. The West just repressed. Any, they said there was no way Africans could have philosophy. They were incapable of it, and just erased it completely off the planet. We know in the United States, the indigenous cultures they did. They were not. They didn't have culture. They were. They were brutes. They were. You know, savages. Right, and they erased their their philosophy and wisdom. But. Not completely. <laughs> but it goes to the things that we've been talking about. Who controls the narrative? Right. That, that same hero's journey framework, that narrative, and then things are packaged up as isms. So, mm. you know, when I do um, workshops and sessions on racism, mm. I always start by saying, well, before you even get to racism, you have to understand colonization. 
was fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Racism as a concept was in nineteen twenties. And right. so racism is a strategy to maintain that process of colonization and colonialism. And so most of the isms that we have have those kind of um those kind of origins. And we have to recognize that you can't shift one without the other. You can't just say, well, we've, we've dealt with racism now, that's it, it's done. That's all I'll call we've, dealt with, we've, dealt with, we've dealt with sexism now, it's done. We've dealt, we've dealt with ageism, it's done. All of those things are interconnected. They are living systems. Mm. And so, you know, it's what is the motivation? What's the greater motivation for people to change, try and change some of those things? Because you change one, everything else has to change. Right. One, well, and, and there's a lot of people that are, highly invested against having nothing change. I mean, not just like, oh, no, I, I don't like change. It's like, no, it's a threat if things change. You know, power structures, hierarchies. We talked about, you know, some of the uber wealthy that they're not going to just likely open the gates to their mansions and say, come on, let's, everybody gets a bedroom. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just, it's not, it's not likely. It could happen, but it's not going to happen uh, widely. So then what are we left to? What are our tools? You know, violent revolution? The heavens, please no. I mean, that yeah. just replicates the old old model. And, and we just see how that, you know, that, that, you know, hate begets hate. You know, how do we disentangle this Gordian knot without destroying the whole thing? It's such a, it's really a big question. And, and I think one of the ones we should be contemplating the most. So it, what you're saying reminds me of, um, a quote that I use whenever I'm preparing a talk or a workshop or anything, I always go back to the same quote. And it's, you know, we talked about storytellers. The purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think, but to give you questions to think upon. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we do it. Yeah. We don't go in, I never go in and say, I am the expert in this and I, you must all listen. I say, listen, I'm a storyteller. And if I can get you to ask yourself questions mm-hmm. about what your real opinion of this thing is, or, you know, that, what have you then it means that it's worked because it means that you've had to lean in and you will go away and you'll think about those questions what you do after that is 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 about choice but you know it's getting people to ask themselves questions to think differently to become to become critical thinkers and philosophers and you know all of those things i think that we are all of the innovation is just problem solving so all of us have the potential to be innovators. All of us have the potential to be futurists or artists or storytellers. It's just how much we lean in or, you know, how much we are um, sometimes given the opportunity to breathe mm-hmm. and to be able to be recognised. Everybody wants to be recognised and to be seen, really seen. And I think that that's a starting point for a lot of this as well. Yeah, I uh, just want to tag that for our, our listeners and viewers here. Everybody can be an innovator. Anybody can solve a problem. Um, collectively, we can solve lots of problems. Uh, and there's there's a part for you to play. There's things for you to do. And, uh, you know, I, just from our perspective, every single life matters. Uh, every single person's expression and uh, uh, beingness, whether it's, you know, whether you're a person of color or you have a different sexual identity or preference, or you have strange religious views, or you don't wear shoes or whatever it is that, that, that in no way means you have any less capacity to be genius in your imagining of a future. And, um, the, honestly, if you, if you're a, person of color who doesn't wear shoes and has you know different sexual designation than normal, you're probably more likely to come up with innovative solutions than those of us who come from straight up in the box. Um, and so we need, we need our outliers. Uh, we need them to be empowered to, to imagine and we need them to be supported in their imagination. When they come up with crazy ideas, we need to go, that's a crazy idea, we should try that. Um, and yeah, so I, I feel inspired uh, by you and by this conversation, and I, I I really am curious to see where this goes next. I think we're in this, you said this liminal state, and liminal states are places where we can create great big imagination and make big plans, uh, and then there's this other state called getting to work, and I'm very curious to see you know what the next five years is going to bring in that regard. We have a lot of ideas, we share ideas, uh, but how do we get to work to help spread these narratives and stories and support people. These are things at the top of my mind. 
I am going to be following you very, very closely. Hopefully we'll get to spend some time together in person in the next uh, six months to a year. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I just I'm so uh, thankful that your mission is my mission and certainly any way that I can help support the things you're doing or like if there's anything you need. I personally, Boldly Now, Generative Futures Initiative will be there right beside you. Well, the, the thing that we're working on at the moment is it's its current name is the Living Library. So mm. it's, but it is that about language, looking at the, what are the, the, um, the micro and meta narratives that are used to define our words and how do we use those to validate ourselves, validate our behaviors. So we're building this. It will be an AI platform, but that's what we're doing of looking and, you know, all of the stuff that I've spoken about today and we've had in this discussion is going into building that platform to be able to start to say, well, what is it that, what does this word mean and how is it used in this context and where does it originate and how, where is it now? And where could it go? I'm so uh, I'm so happy about that. I have a, 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 a I call it a, a, a memetics that of, of words that I use repeatedly. There's about 130 terms in there that I've just defined for myself because when we use these these terms, we have to be responsible for their impact. And so we better know what they mean and better know how we mean to use them. So I'll be happy to to uh, have that conversation with you guys another time too. I do believe you're right. I do believe uh, either inventing language or adopting old language, ancient language ideas and moving them into common vernacular can be some of the longest levers, especially we as storytellers can use, um, but but some of the longest levers for culture in general. Um, and that I like, no, I just love the fact that now you're bringing technology to it as well. We're gonna, we're gonna potentize this capacity to create powerful language. But then the other, the, going back to the original, your original introduction, I'm an artist as well. So what I'm, what we're doing is looking at yes, language, but then when we only use spoken words, mm. is is it does it mean that everything has to be English or what language do we choose? And so what I'm doing as an artist is looking at how do we I take those concepts and remove the spoken language from it. So I created a soundscape, create, looking at creating immersive experiences that means that more people have access to understanding what these things are and that it um, doesn't create a hierarchy again. Mm. Yeah, being able to even yeah. language, you know, speak English, for example. Yeah. Exactly, and so that it can scale. Yeah, and, and we all know that, that language, uh, there's art in translating language. It's not, a, there's no science in this word in this language versus this word. There's some amount of art and that's where biases creep in. And that's where, and that's where we can filter them out as well. We can create some kind of artistic. Um, and then I love the, the embodied art concept as well. I'm a, I'm not an embodied artist, but I have a huge amount of appreciation uh, for, um, for those uh, forms because of their capacity to convey something without, without the words something that hits you here without understanding here. Exactly. <laughs> thank um, well, thank you so much for having this amazing conversation today. I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have many more as time goes on and we try to help uh, people to you know, climb on board with some of this thinking. I, I think it's important that people see that, that we as well are working and struggling our way through these ideas and trying them on and seeing how they fit and uh, seeing that there's gaps in our own understanding, our own capacity, our own, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, people like you and me are out there constantly trying to learn um, and share what we've learned to, to create more opportunity for people to make a bigger impact. So, um, yeah. Thank I would you love to have a conversation with you offline as well to find yeah, yeah. out what we're doing and how we can support each other. Absolutely. We'll certainly be doing that, maybe even in a couple of minutes. So uh, uh, that's it for all from the, the Boldly Now Show and the Generative Futures Initiative. Uh, thank you for joining this conversation. Uh, if you need resources, join our, uh, visit our websites at uh, generativefuturesinitiative.com and bold.ly. Ada, uh, what is your uh, website? Is it, It's Ada Paris, right? A-D-A-H-P-A-R-R-I-S.com. I want to give you a little, little shout out because you... Um, on your website, you even list your values. And I read your values and I felt really kind of uh, inspired that you put that on a public place along with bio and work and media and all kinds of ways that you can get involved in. in it's important. You know, that it's important to know 
what I stand for and so that people are very clear and then you know that's if we think about the relationships we have with individuals we choose we choose our friends our family what have you based on their values so why wouldn't we do the same thing when we're trying to choose who we work with okay I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that idea and publish my values on my website <laughs> I've done the work I just haven't published it so you're 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 encouraging me to to get out there in that way uh, uh, well, thank you so much for this time and look forward to speaking to you again soon. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Boldly Now is an initiative of the Generative Futures Initiative, generating a thriving future for humanity. Learn more at generativefuturesinitiative.com.